All right. Happy Good Friday, everyone. Thank you for joining us this afternoon, evening, night. Um, let's go ahead and worship together. Show me your love through the joy. 
Good evening, Lighthouse Community Church. I'm so blessed to be with you on this Good Friday service. And at this time, we're going to stop what we're doing and take a moment to take communion together. As we get ready to take communion together, I just want to remind you guys that whether you're home alone or whether you're home with a bunch of people sitting around a table, um, wherever you are, however you are, we are still the church. We're not forsaking that gathering. We're continuing to do what we can do as we can do it. And I tell you what, although this is the first communion I've ever partaken of, where I'm sitting in front of an absolute empty church, the one thing I know about this communion that reigns strong with my heart is that if there's great joy and great hope in anything, church, is the next time we get a chance to take communion, there'll be a chance that we'll all be back together in this building. And the day that we're all back in this building together again, we'll realize just what an opportunity communion has provided for us. The opportunity to be free from our sins, to be followers of Jesus Christ, and have the greatest gift that the world was ever given, was given on this evening some 2,000 years ago. Thank you, Lord, for giving your life on this cross. Thank you, Lord, for willingly being able to walk into a place that so many of us could never even fathom. I pray that this evening as we sit down and prepare our hearts and prepare our minds to commune with you, Father, that we would do as the scripture says, we would do this in remembrance of you with great joy, with great anticipation, reminding ourselves to be even grateful for the days that we've already lived, for the hours and the moments that we've already spent together, that we would, being anxious for nothing, knowing, Father, that you bear this all for us, and in that we have this great hope you will one day return for your church. Father, be with your church tonight as we commune with you. Please turn with me to the passage that we'll be reading this evening in Mark 14, verses 12 through 26. Mark 14, 12 through 26. On the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he went to the two disciples and telling them, go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room and where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said to them, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, But surely you don't mean me. It was one of the twelve, he replied. The one who dips his bread into this bowl with me, the Son of Man, will go just as it's written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him not to have been born." And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to the disciples, This bread is my body, broken for you. And then he took a cup and gave thanks, and when he gave it to them, they all drank from it. This is my covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day that I will drink anew in the kingdom of God. When they sang a hymn, they went out from the house of the Mount of Olives. Let's first take the bread. The bread is the body of our Lord given to us freely for us to remind ourselves that we are not doing this of our own power, but of the power of Christ within us. Take and eat this bread in remembrance of him.
And when he was finished with the bread, he took the cup and he told him that it was his blood that was poured out for us to wash and cleanse us, to make us anew. And every time we do this, we do this in remembrance of him. Let us take the cup and do this in remembrance of him. Until the Lord returns again, church, and until we can once again meet again, may the Lord God be with you and bless you this Good Friday evening.
Thank you, Cheyenne. All right. Well, good evening. Happy Good Friday. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. That's where we're going to be uh, continuing the story this evening. And although it's becoming the end of Good Friday, we're actually going to jump in at the beginning. Uh, the Jewish calendar actually, or their, their day cycles actually begin at sundown at 6 p.m. and it runs to sundown the next day. So what we are going to be looking at today is a story that takes place right at the beginning of Good Friday. As sundown has happened, Jesus has shared a meal with his disciples uh, in the upper room. That's become the foundation for our right of communion. And as soon as they're done with that, Jesus has his disciples get up and follow him. And they walk out of that upper room, through the streets of Jerusalem, through one of the gates, out into the Kidron Valley, and up this hill that we know of as the Mount of Olives. Specifically, he leads them to a small grove of olive trees that we have come to know as Gethsemane. And I've wondered at times why he chose to do that. But it's because he wanted to spend some time praying with the Father. And, and I understand wanting to be out in the open. Like, I feel like I hear God's voice so much better out in the cathedral of creation as opposed to being in a room. And I suspect that Jesus felt the same way because he didn't go that far. The Mount of Olives and the uh, Garden of Gethsemane isn't that far from where they started in the upper room. But in the upper room, there were so many distractions. It was probably a pretty small area. There were a whole lot of people in there. And Jesus recognized the gravity of what he was walking into, what the next 24 hours was going to hold in his life. And the stakes were simply too high for him to spend that time distracted by a whole bunch of other things and a whole bunch of other people. He needed time with his father. He needed to have a raw and real conversation with his father. And so he went to a place where he could be alone with him. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to pick up the story in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took a couple of his disciples, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him. And, and Jesus began to feel sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, guys, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So stay here and keep watch with me. And then going just a little bit further until Jesus was totally alone, he fell to his face to the ground and he prayed. And this was the heart that he poured out. My father, if it's possible, may this cup of wrath be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He then got up, dusted himself off, and he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you guys keep watch with me just for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time, and he prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, then may your will be done. And when he came back again, he found them sleeping yet again because their eyes were heavy. They must have had a big meal that night. So he left them and he went once more and prayed a third time saying the same thing. God, if there's any way we could do it differently, please let's do it that way. But your will, not mine, be done. 
And then he returned to his disciples and said to them, are you guys still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of his 12 disciples arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs who were sent from the chief priests and the elder of the people. Now Judas, the betrayer, had arranged a signal with them. He said, the one that I kiss is the man to arrest. Arrest him. And then going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Then the men, uh, Jesus said to him, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward. They seized Jesus and they arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus's companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off, of his, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Don't you think I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd that had come to arrest him, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you didn't arrest me then. But this all had to take place so that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples deserted him, and they fled. And we know how the story goes from that point forward. Jesus is arrested. He's brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling uh, Jewish class. And this group of people, it's a kangaroo court. They've already determined that he's guilty and that he needs to die. But they go through the process of, of putting on a sham trial. They declare him to be guilty, worthy of death. But they're not allowed to carry it out themselves because they're under Roman occupation. So they ship him off to Pontius Pilate who is the Roman procurator over the whole area. And Pontius Pilate doesn't want to put Jesus to death, but it's the Sanhedrin, these Jewish rulers, who are saying, no, he needs to die. He's a danger. He's not our king. Crucify him. And they start getting the crowds who had at one point, a week before, shouted, Hosanna, save us. They get the crowds to start shouting, crucify him. And eventually Pontius Pilate washes his hands of the whole thing and says, fine, take him away. Do with him as you wish. And Jesus is stripped, mocked, beaten to a, within an inch of his life, forced to drag the implement of his torturous death through the streets of Jerusalem to Golgotha, Skull Hill, where he is hung on a cross between two common criminals. I want to back up for a minute because that's where we tend to focus our energy. That's where we tend to focus our time on Good Friday is where it ends on Golgotha. But I want to go back to where it began, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want to consider Jesus' attitude towards the cross. Because the truth is, we know that he went to the cross. That he chose to carry his cross. But the reality is, he didn't want to. And that's very, very evident as we read through that, that portion as he's in the garden, as he is on his knees begging, God, if there's any way we can do this, can we do it a different way? And I just wonder for a moment, if you can think of a time in your life where God has asked you to do something that you didn't want to do. He asked, has he asked you to do something that you knew would cost you? 
Maybe he's asked you to give up a, a job that was your security, but you know that doing what you've been doing is not the right thing that you should be doing. And he's calling you out of it. Sometimes maybe he called you out of it and you didn't even know why. This is such a good thing. Why are you telling me to give it up? Maybe he's called you to move somewhere and you knew it would cost you a community and the comfort of the, you know, the people that you already know. Maybe it's a relationship that he's called you out of. And he said, you know what? You don't want to be in this relationship. And that's been your security. And you know, it's going to cost you, but you know, to say no is to resist God. And there's a reason why he's telling it to you. Sometimes what he tells us is you need to confess a particular area of brokenness and sin in your own life. And I get, you don't want to, because to confess it would be to, to pull away your fig leaves and be, to be exposed to other people, to be known, to have to come out of hiding. And that's uncomfortable. Regardless of what God may have called you to do that was uncomfortable, I can guarantee you it wasn't anywhere near what he was asking Jesus to do. Willingly walk to the cross. The most painful, torturous death that a, a nation that excelled at killing people could come up with. Willingly take the sins of all of mankind upon your own shoulders. Die for other people's sins. Jesus didn't want to. And I have to tell you, that actually gives me comfort. That might surprise you a little bit that I would find comfort in the fact that Jesus didn't want to die on the cross, but it comforts me because it reminds me that Jesus is human. It reminds me that although Jesus is divine, he's the son of God, we know this. We know that he was there in the beginning when God spoke the world into existence. It was Jesus, the divine logos, who actually brought the world together. But Jesus was also human. When he was born as a child, he emptied himself of his godhood so that he could walk as a human being, so that he could suffer so that he could grieve, so that he could fear, so that he could die. The writer of Hebrews understood how important it was for Jesus to be human. Because if he is human, he can understand our hearts. Let me actually go ahead and read this portion of scripture from the book of Hebrews. It's in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. It says this, Jesus understood Jesus understands every weakness of ours because he was tempted in every way that we are, but he didn't sin. That's the difference. He was tempted, but he didn't give in to that temptation. However, because he's tasted temptation, because he's tasted the frailty of a human body, whenever we are in need, We could come bravely before the throne of our merciful God. And there we will be treated with undeserved kindness and we will find help. You don't have to stand far off as if Jesus couldn't possibly understand. He's not some Superman who's never felt frailty. He understands it. And so we can come with our frailty. He's tasted sorrow. He tasted it in the garden. As he goes, guys, I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so we can bring our sorrow to him when we feel overwhelmed. Maybe it's because we're overwhelmed by the COVID virus. 
We're overwhelmed by the fact that we can't gather together like we normally would. We're overwhelmed by the fact that we don't know what tomorrow holds. We can bring all of those emotions to him and he can empathize with us. We can bring our fears to him because he feared. He's safe to be able to confide those things in. And because Jesus was tempted to run from the cross, we can run to him when we are tempted. The fact that Jesus felt fear makes him so much more approachable. Makes him so much more of a relatable savior. He can relate to us. He understands what we're feeling so we can just come as we are. We don't have to try to pretty ourselves up or pretend we've got it all together. Pretend we're stronger than we are. He knows our hearts. So stop pretending and just come as you are. And I love that picture of Jesus as he brings his disciples to, the, to Gethsemane, to this, this garden of, of olive trees. And then he brings a few, his closest guys, his, his inner circle. He brings them a little bit farther and says, hey guys, stay with me, pray with me because I'm weighed down with a lot right now. And then he goes even further in until he's t- totally by himself and he falls to his knees and he begins to beg God, if there's any way we can do this other than dying on a cross, please let's do it that way. And yet he tempers that with the reminder that the father It's his will that he wants to bring about, not his own. So he says, but father, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And I know that that's not the sum total. That's not all that he said. He was in there probably for close to an hour, long enough for his disciples to fall asleep. But the gist of it was, God, I don't want to die, but I'm willing to submit to your will because I want your will to be done. Then he gets up and he comes out and he wakes the guys up and he says, guys, couldn't you keep watch for an hour? Just an hour. Don't you realize the temptation that's coming? Because he knew, he knew what was coming, although they didn't. He tried to warn them. He tried to tell them, guys, it's not going to be like you think. I'm not going to be this conquering king that everyone's going to keep shouting Hosanna to. They will kill me and you will be scattered. And they said, oh no, we'll never be scattered, Jesus. But he knew. He knew that their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak. And so he said, guys, you need to pray. Not just for me, pray for yourself because you have no idea the trial that's coming. And then he goes back in and he prays a second time, the same thing. God, if there's any way, but not my will, yours be done. And he comes out again, finds them asleep. And then he goes in a third time and prays the same way. You know, one of the pieces of this that I think is really important for us to consider, and it's a piece that we could easily overlook, is is simply where Jesus is spending this time praying. In an orchard of olive trees called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is a a Hebrew word, Getshmini, that means the oil press. And they probably called it Getshmini because there was an actual oil press in the garden so that when people were picking olives, they would be able to press the oil out of it right there without having to ship them somewhere else to do it. And I've always known that fact, but I've never really understood why that was important or what bearing that might have on the story until about a year ago, almost a year ago exactly, when a a group of us from Lighthouse were actually in Israel and we went to a place where they had 
a, a working oil press. And when we got to understand the process by which oil is extracted from olives, we began to understand the significance of the fact that Jesus found himself in a garden by the name of Getshmani or the oil press. So I want to take about five minutes and explain to you the process that they take to get the oil out of the olives. And on your uh, screens, hopefully you're going to be seeing some pictures. The first picture you're going to be seeing, and, I, and wave at me if, if they are seeing this good. Um, the first picture you see is of them crushing the olives. And what they would do is they would take these olives and either uh, by hand, or if they had a larger wheel than the one that you're seeing that guy crushing the grapes with, they might have a mule or, or, or a donkey that would be pulling that wheel. They would crush the grapes. And the purpose of doing this is to break the skin and to mash up the pulp a little bit so that it becomes a bit more of an olive mash. And that way, the oil can be easily extracted from it. Let's go ahead and go to the next picture. Then they take that olive mash after it's been smashed, and they slop it into these wicker baskets that they then stack up underneath the oil press. And there's a large bar that would be placed over the top of it. Now, for the first pressing, the virgin oil... They wouldn't add any weight to it. All they would allow is the weight of the bar pressing down on it to begin to let the oil slowly seep out. And they would wait for a while. And as you can see, let's go to the next picture. As you can see, what begins to happen is the oil begins to come out the sides and run down the sides of the wicker baskets. And there's a a channel that's carved out of the stone beneath it where the oil begins to gather and then flow into a hole in the ground where they would place a receptacle, whether that be a bowl or a vase of some sort to collect the oil. And for the first pressing, for the virgin oil, they don't add any weight to it. It is the purest, most sought after oil, the virgin olive oil. And that oil was more often than not sent to the temple, particularly there from Getshmini, from that, from that grove, being as close as it was to the temple. The first pressing of oil would be sent to the temple and it would be used to keep the menorah, the, the lamps lit 24 hours a day. It would be used uh, to anoint people for ministry. It would also be used to feed the priests and the Levites, whatever needs for oil that they had in the temple. That's what the first pressing was for. After the first pressing, let's go to the next picture. Hopefully you're seeing some pictures of stones that are then put onto the rod so that it adds a bit of pressure onto the the stack of olive paste. This weight begins to push more of the uh, the olive oil out of the mash. And this second pressing was the, the oil that they would use all around their house. They would use it for cooking. They'd use it to dip their bread in. They would use it in case somebody got a cut. They could put it on that cut. It was medicinal purposes. They could use it if somebody had lice. They could put it in their hair to begin to get rid of the lice or whatever needs they had around the house. That was what that particular pressing of oil was for. Then, after the second pressing, they would add all the rest of the weight, all the other stones that they had, they would put it onto the bar for the third pressing. Now the weight of this third pressing was so great that it would begin to leach the oil out of the rind of the the olives. It would begin to break some of the pits. And so there were uh, tannins. There There was color that began to leach into the oil. And so you see in this next picture, the reddish color of the oil. 
it was a bitter type of oil. It was certainly not the type of oil you would ever want to eat or cook with because of its bitterness, because of its color. But there was still a use for this oil. They would take it and they would make bars of oil soap. They would also use it to light their lamps. They would put the oil in the lamp with a wick and that's how they would light up their homes. Now, why do I share all of these things with you? Because Jesus was sitting in a grove of olive trees known as Getshmini or the oil press. And do you remember how many times Jesus went into the garden to pray? Three times, right? And do you remember what Luke described Jesus' sweat as being like as he was praying on that third time? It was like drops of blood coming off of Jesus. Some uh, translations suggest that there was actually blood that was mixed into his sweat as it was dropping because of the amount of pressure that Jesus found himself under. That the, the capillaries in his skin were bursting because of the pressure and mixing with his sweat, which is something that actually happens to people when they're under extreme duress, which is exactly where Jesus found himself. Because he's staring down the cross, recognizing that in just a few short hours, he's going to be hanging on it and he doesn't want to be there. And so he is being literally pressed in the garden of the oil press. And the three pressings, let's remember, the first one is used for worship in the temple. Jesus willingly took the cross upon his shoulders. He didn't want to, but out of his submission and his worship of the father, he ordered his life around the father as opposed to demanding that the father order creation and everything else around him. His willingness to go to the cross was an act of worship. The second pressing is where we are fed. It's where you you apply medicine to people. And in the same way, Jesus, we just took communion as a tangible reminder of the way that Jesus' body nourishes us. His body, the bread that was given for us, his blood, the wine that was shed for us. He came to heal and to bind up the broken. And then the third pressing, used to make oil soap. And to light a lamp. And Jesus in the same way came to cleanse us of our sins. And to provide a light. A beacon of hope. He said I am the light of the world. And he was pointing us back to the father. Jesus. Did not want to die. But he was willing to die. And he was in Gethsemane being pressed. But he chose to take the cross upon himself. And so I want to. I want to pray. And in just a moment you're going to see a picture. Of Jesus in the garden. This is a picture that I I actually took right outside of a church that's been built over where some people think the Garden of Gethsemane actually was. And somebody had painted this picture of Jesus in the garden. I felt it was, it, it evoked something in me that most pictures of Jesus, most stained glass of Jesus praying simply don't. Because I could sense the agony and the pressure, the weight he was under. And so I snapped a picture of it and I'm, I'm gonna have you just consider that picture as I pray. Jesus, we recognize that you did not want to die, at least not on the cross. And as you prayed to the Father in Gethsemane, you knew what the next 24 hours held in store for you. And your flesh cried, run! But your spirit cried, Father, I trust you. 
And I want your will to be done. Jesus, thank you for choosing to listen to your spirit rather than your flesh. Thank you for allowing yourself to be arrested. We recognize that you could have called an army of angels to defend you, but you didn't. Thank you for allowing yourself to be beaten and mocked and ultimately killed for us. You said that there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for a friend. And we thank you that you willingly laid yours down for us. So this evening, as we go into a time of response, we simply want to sit in the magnitude of the gift that you have given us. That because of your suffering, we don't have to. Because of your wounds, we're healed. Because you chose to die in our place, we choose to live for you. Thank you for loving us so completely, Jesus. Amen. No.
probably ironic uh, to anybody who does not yet call Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior, that our symbol for our faith would be a torture implement. Makes no sense, apart from understanding why Jesus did it. He didn't do it because he liked pain. He wanted to avoid that cross as much as possible but he did it because he loved us that much. He did it because he trusted his father and submitted to his father more than he feared the pain of the cross. And on that good Friday, our savior trudged through the streets of Jerusalem, carrying the implement of his torturous death on his shoulders. He was nailed to a tree to cross a cross on a hill with common criminals. And he breathed his last breath as all of the weight of our sins fell upon him. We were just singing a moment ago. Jesus paid it all. Everything. And some of you continue to carry around the weight of your sins. You continue to carry around the guilt of what you've done. Oh, Jesus couldn't possibly take this. No, he, he, he doesn't deserve it. No, you're right. He doesn't deserve it. He didn't deserve any of it. He was completely and utterly without, was without sin. And yet, it took that pure and spotless Passover lamb that we call Jesus, our Christ. It took him to cleanse us so that when the wrath of God comes, it will pass over us will be left unmarked. We live for him because he chose to die for us. Maybe I shouldn't assume that. Jesus chose to die for you and for me. We don't deserve it. And that's what makes it a gift. That's what makes it grace. If we did deserve it, then it would be payment. But it's a gift. Jesus died for you. And he died for me and he chose to do so, even though he knew what it would cost him. And so my invitation to you tonight is to choose to live for him. To choose to run to him. He's not some angry 
cop with his arms crossed in heaven, looking down on you, waiting for you to screw up so he can strike you with a lightning bolt. That's not who he is. He is a savior who gave his life for us. He is a Lord who knows better than us what lies ahead on this broken, sin-scarred path that we find ourselves walking. Right now, it feels like we're walking through the, shadow, uh, the, 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 the valley of the shadow of death. Well, he's right here with us. And we have a Savior who has been tempted in every single way that we have. He didn't give in to sin, but he understands us so we can come just as we are. So stop resisting. Stop running. Stop trying to clean yourself up as if you could. Jesus has already done it. He paid it all. So we get to, to live for him. Now, this is a pretty heavy message. It always is. But it takes sitting in the heaviness of Good Friday to understand the celebration of Easter Sunday. Apart from Good Friday, Easter Sunday doesn't mean a whole lot. The, the metaphor that just kind of came to me, and I've used it in a couple of our devotionals, is Good Friday is the wedding. Easter Sunday is the reception. I look forward to celebrating with you on Easter Sunday at 10 a.m., you know, same YouTube time, same YouTube channel, whatever. I don't know. I'll hopefully see you back here. But right now, I just want to encourage you to sit in the weight of the gift that Jesus bought for you. Don't resist it. Don't try to do something to earn it. Just receive it and say thank you. Because he loves you that much. Have a wonderful good, good Friday evening. Have a wonderful Saturday and we'll see you back here on Sunday. Good night.